The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 439. If you want to grow, if you want to innovate, one of the things I would suggest is innovating against external change because it's far more likely that you're going to be disrupted than be the disruptor. At this moment, rogue waves are forming around your business. Emerging technologies, changing demographics, the data economy, automation, and other trends. The undercurrents of radical systemic change are crashing into each other. When they converge, they'll produce sea changes that sink companies and wash away entire industries overnight. If your competitor can't ride out the next wave and you can, you win. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. I started Read to Lead because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is the best place to start. I will help you to narrow your ever-important reading list and bring you the key insights and main ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors and their books. Today, we are joined by author Jonathan Brill. He's written a book called Rogue Waves, Future-Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. I'll be asking Jonathan about how to identify and capitalize on the economic, technological, and social trends that will collide to reshape your business, ways to turn sudden threats into outsized opportunities, how you as a leader can create a culture of entrepreneurship and experimentation in your organization, and plenty more. When it comes to the content you consume, be it this podcast or a book or a YouTube video, say a TED Talk or articles on the web, if in the past it's been a struggle for you to effectively capture the ideas you want to capture, organize those ideas, distill those ideas down to their essence, and then create with those ideas, from those ideas, you are absolutely not alone. As I've spoken around the country since Read to Lead, the book was released, The question I get more than any other is, Jeff, how do you effectively take notes and and actually do something with those notes? Because that's, that's the point of consuming the content we consume, right? Of reading the books that we read. We want to take what we've learned and put it into action. And it's our notes that make that possible. Well, if note taking has been a struggle for you, it may be in large part because what you really need to be doing is note making. And that's exactly what you'll learn how to do and how to do well in the note-making mastery cohort. There have already been two iterations of the cohort that have been overwhelmingly well-received. In fact, I just got in my email last week an unsolicited testimonial from someone from cohort two. His name, Dan Miller. You may have heard of him. He's the author of 48 Days to the Work You Love, New York Times bestseller. And he said, as a poor farm kid, I discovered the magic of books and audio programs from the Masters of Achievement and how those opened doors of opportunity to go more, see more, 
do more, and have more. I underlined and tabbed those books and wrote myself thousands of notes while listening, but I trusted only my memory for accessing those great quotations and inspiring business and relationship principles over the years. Then I enrolled in Jeff's note-making mastery course. For the first time, I feel like I have a personal knowledge management system. I've learned how to process and store that wealth of information for easy retrieval. I've learned that it's less about organizing my notes and more about developing my ideas. He goes on to say, I've learned how to go from those rough handwritten notes to creating my own unique voice with that borrowed wisdom reflected in a finished form. I highly recommend note-making mastery for anyone serious about learning and growing, regardless of past experience or current success. Again, that from Dan Miller, New York Times best-selling author of the book, 48 Days to the Work and Life You Love. I share that because I want you to know that this fall, I'll be offering cohort number three. And if you'd like to be on the notifications list for when that cohort becomes available, all you need to do is go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list and put your first name and email address in the form. Click submit and you will then be on the notifications list. You'll be among the first to find out about my next note-making mastery cohort. One more time, that's read to lead podcast.com slash list. And I look forward to seeing you in that next class. The former global futurist and research director at HP, Jonathan Brill, is a board member and advisor to the chairman at Frost & Sullivan, a market intelligence firm operating in 46 countries. He consults globally on resilient growth strategy and product innovation for clients such as Samsung, Microsoft, Verizon, PepsiCo, and the U.S. government. He has been a research consultant to the MIT Media Lab, an executive at Frog Design, and the managing partner at innovation firms that have generated over $27 billion in new revenue for customers. An in-demand thought leader, speaker, and contributor to TED, Singularity University, Corn Ferry, J.P. Morgan Chase, Forbes, and Harvard Business Review, he is the futurist in residence at Territory Studio the creative visionaries behind the sci-fi tech in Ghost in the Shell, Blade Runner 2049, and Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. His new book is called Rogue Waves, Future-Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. Well, Jonathan, it's a delight to, to have you here. This book, is a, a Rogue Waves, is a much-needed book and one I recommend to anyone and everyone listening. So thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to be here today. Of course. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. One of the things I wanted to ask you first, not about the book at all, but I just, I just want to have you describe what a futurist in residence is, because that sounds, <laughs> that sounds fascinating to me. <laughs> so I, I help organizations, uh, typically large organizations who are looking at radical change. How do they uh, transform themselves for the future? How do they protect themselves from the future? How do they move into uh, not just a new product category, but a new platform category or a new channel? Mm. Uh, I help them think about what are those small changes they need to make over time that maximize their optionality and their potential no matter what happens. Oftentimes, that requires doing a lot of market intelligence work, doing a lot of economic intelligence work, doing a lot of technology intelligence work to understand the range of what is not just possible or, or what we dream of, but what's plausible. Mm. Right? When you take a look at something like uh, COVID at the beginning of this, you know, there was so much conversation about that kind of thing can't actually happen anymore. 
And yet the probability was increasing dramatically. Last July, uh, we saw a thousand year floods in Germany, except that because of climate change, because of changes in the environment, those thousand year floods had become hundred year floods, had become 12 to 20 year floods. And yet we hadn't recalculated the likelihood of that given Mm. the environmental change around it. And so I look at two things with my customers. Uh, One is how do we maximize compound growth? How do we maximize our optionality and our potential over time? And how do we execute against it? And then how do we do that in the face of compound volatility? All of these individually manageable ways of disruption that can collide to suddenly become massive 120-foot rogue waves of change. The companies that are designed to take advantage of this 14-year cross-sectoral study by McKinsey have 81% higher economic profits over time. Mm. So if you want to grow, if you want to innovate, you know, one of the things I would suggest is innovating against external change because it's far more likely that you're going to be disrupted than be the disruptor. If you, ta- if you understand how to surf that wave, how to, how to be resilient, how to flip your f- kayak faster than your competition, when everyone else is capsized, that's blue ocean mm. for you. Well, you've heard Jonathan speak now a little bit, and you've learned what I learned when I dove into the book. He's very smart. <laughs> and, and as I read this book, I'm like, I am reading the book of an author who is, who is a whole lot smarter than me. And I'm going to learn a lot reading this book. And I have, uh, for sure. And you will, too, as you uh, continue with this conversation. Uh, Jonathan, what are some of the scenarios that, that you believe are going to cause the next series of rogue waves and, and maybe preface that by by some more detail about what is a rogue wave exactly in the context of business. You kind of hinted at that a little bit. Yeah. So in in the deep ocean, you know, you might see 12 foot waves or 20 foot waves, but then out of nowhere, you know, you can see a hundred foot wave pop up just in seconds. And it seems to come out of nowhere, but it's the result of individually manageable waves uh, colliding and all of that energy compressing in one space and at one time. And if you are ready for that, you can survive it. If you aren't, you know, this is one of the major killers of even the largest ships. Like it'll sink a 600 foot ship in a second. In business, the same thing is true. Right. That, that, that we look around and we look at all our risk management and we look at all the things around us and we say, hey, you know, the future is going to be pretty much like tomorrow, but 10 or 20 percent different. The problem is sometimes it's like 100 percent different. <laughs> and if you take a look over time at the amount of change that's possible in, say, a decade, let's go back to 1900 to, to 1910, for instance. Mm-hmm. Right, a major uh, growing power took over a Pacific Island chain. Let's call that the United States. In that case, we saw the the distribution of electricity through the United States. We saw the development of the automobile. Uh, we saw the invention of the airplane. Mm. We saw the the development of of the the, the Haber process. This is the, what became the Bosch Haber process, mm. which enables fertilizer, which quadrupled the the the, the carrying capacity of the planet. Right, the amount of people on the planet. Mm. Right, that, that's possible in a decade, and that's possible in a decade in 1900. Right, right. <laughs> if you believe the world moves a little faster today, <laughs> right, maybe that's your three to five year future. Mm. And so, what we need to be thinking about 
when we look at tomorrow is not just what are the things we know we've experienced in our career, right? We think, hey, our 25 years as an executive, like that's a statistically relevant set. It's not. We've got to look into the deeper history to understand the range of change that's possible. Otherwise, we get into these situations where we think <laughs> pandemics can't happen. <laughs> Mm, (laughs) or or pandemics only happen over there. Right. There's no reason that this future is less likely than another future today, maybe less likely over time or in any given hundred years. But in so many cases, we see these things as kind of unlikely situations, but that's over time. Many of these situations are equally likely today. And so we need to prepare for that kind of that scale of radical change. And the companies, like I said, that do this, and this is an innovation story foundationally, that resilience and growth are deeply interrelated. If you do this, you know, this is your opportunity for growth, not, not like trying to do 10% better than your, your, your competitors on some product feature. Mm. It's doing radically better than your competitors when that change happens and they're caught flat-footed. Mm. Well, Jonathan uh, divides the book into three parts. There's awareness, uh, behavior change, and then culture change. I want to jump into part two now where you unpack, Jonathan, the, the rogue method, starting with the R reality test. Can you unpack that for us? And then we'll kind of go through each of these, these other four. That sounds great. And let's just go over the ABCs of, of resilient growth really quick mm-hmm. so that there's a bigger frame. Sure. So uh, the way I think about preparing companies, future-proofing companies, is that we need to have three things go on in the organization. One, we need to increase awareness about the range of change uh, that's possible. Because at the end of the day, when when that change has to happen in your organization, uh, the reality is that you as a leader are going to be the blocker, that, that people need to be able to innovate, to operate in alignment faster than you can possibly tell them what to do. Mm. And so if you're the people in your engine room don't know what's happening on the ocean, right? As the captain, you're the blocker, you're the challenge. You might not know this about the Titanic. Fascinating story. So we hear, you know, the iceberg hit the Titanic. Uh, everybody tried to get off the boat. There weren't enough lifeboats. That is true. But the more interesting thing is 90 minutes after the iceberg hit the Titanic, the captain hadn't told the majority of his crew that that had happened. Mm. And even though there weren't actually enough lifeboats on the Titanic to get everybody off, not all of the lifeboats were released. Mm. Not even enough people knew to get off the freaking boat. Mm. And so you need to increase awareness in your organization if you want to innovate in the face of radical change. The second thing you need to do is build the behaviors that make that possible. Like knowing that the tsunami is coming doesn't really matter. It just freaks people out if they don't know how to get off the beach. So we need to improve our skills for dealing with taking advantage of identifying these changes in our organization Mm -hmm. much lower than, than most of the time we do today. And then the last piece is about culture change. So how do we create a culture where it's possible to have a discussion about that iceberg, that, 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 that dark outline on the horizon for which we don't yet have enough information, for which we don't yet have enough data to back up our propositions? And we need to have all three of these pieces in our organization, awareness, behavior, and culture to, to be fully prepared, to be fully future-proofed against 
anything that could happen. And the companies that do this, you know, they had really good years in the face of COVID, not just because they were lucky, but in, in comparison to their competitors. The companies that don't, obviously, they tend to have more problems. Mm. I appreciate that uh, 30,000 foot overview of, of the three parts. And that's very, very helpful. Now, with that groundwork laid, maybe now's a better time to, to unpack the, the method I was talking about earlier, yeah. if, you, if you don't mind, starting with the, the, the R, the, what you call the, the reality test. Yeah. So we talk in, in, in behavior change, there are five major skills that we need to build into our organizations. And, and this can go like five miles deep here, <laughs> but at the top level, it's what I call the rogue method because I'm a consultant. And so you've got to have acronyms, right? <laughs> right. Um, uh, so they should, and they should be tied to the book title, which is rogue waves. Um, so R is reality testing, right? Is the world moves faster, the likelihood that, that things we believe to be true are no longer true is growing. And the likelihood that we don't know what we're talking about is the same as it's always been. Mm. And so we talk about how to search, how to understand new situations and the best practices for doing that. And we draw on my work building the market intelligence capability at HP, the computer company, mm -hmm. uh, the, the best practices from the national intelligence colleges and national defense colleges in the United States. And and, and deep, like what's called epistemology, super geeky like philosophy stuff about how we know what we know. And, and in the book, we talk about it in, in like really fun ways. We talk about Sherlock Holmes. We talk about, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of fun ways to, to, to learn about these things. So it doesn't feel like you're going, like you're going to philosophy school uh, or, or taking a math class. Um, but what I try and do is I try and teach you those, those deep skills the things that you were taught again and again and again from kindergarten through college, mm. the foundational skills you were supposed to take away, but no one ever told you what they were. And mm. so we create a framework for, for looking at that and using that to know new things. Mm. Uh, we talk about the O in Rogue is observing systems. So what you want to be able to do is you know, as, as you start to look around an environment, a new situation, your organization, your processes, is look at them not just as, as point pieces of data, but understand how they work as an ecosystem. Mm. Kind of think about a Rube Goldberg machine. What you want to be able to predict or, or forecast is, you know, if you put, if there's some black box in this system of whatever it is, it's mm. Rube Goldberg, and you put a quarter in the top and peanuts come out. And you put two quarters into the top and three times as much peanuts come out and you put four quarters in the top and the whole thing explodes, right? But you don't know what was in that thing in that black box in the middle. What can you know about it? What can you know about what goes on inside? And what can you know about, and this sounds like a freaking word problem. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but what can you know about if you put the fifth quarter in, mm. what happens next, right? Mm. And, and so we talk about that, how to do that, how to think about that, how to think about that as a team, because it's often really difficult to do it as an individual. And mm. when you do it as a team, you often get into groupthink. So we talk about how to, how to do that more effectively. Getting uh, comfortable with uncertainty, basically, right? I, I believe foundationally that... I, I have absolutely no fear of jumping off cliffs you know, and jumping out of airplanes. Yeah. And that's really weird. Most people don't actually get paid to come up with ideas for disaster movies for a living and think that's fun, right? I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a weirdo that way. Mm. Most people want a process to deal with fear, to deal with uncertainty, to deal with change mm. so that they know where they are at in that process. 
especially mid-level managers. They really, really want that. And so that's what we're talking about. It's like, how do you build that process? So, so reality testing, observing systems, mm-hmm. uh, the, the G is generating the range of possible futures. So the interesting thing about looking at systems and being able to use what's called Bayesian reasoning, if you care, um, mm-hmm. to look at that range of possible futures is that you can then start to forecast some pretty extreme stuff, mm-hmm. right? What really could happen? And then what are the secondary implications of that? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's not what you know that gets you, it's what you know that just ain't so. You know, so I think Mark Twain said, what you think, you know, yeah. you know, and uh, so it's really important to, to really understand that range of possible futures. And in the book, we talk about what are the best practices uh, for doing this, for doing this as a group, for, for embedding yeah. that thinking in your group and in a way that's not some million dollar consulting engagement that, that you can do, you know, in an hour uh, or, or in an afternoon. Then we talk about more traditional project management things, uh, uncoupling threats. From opportunities, yeah. You know, this is going back to the rogue method. So we're in you mm. uncoupling, right? And and how do you look at a decision tree if you know there's a range of possible futures? What are the key moments in that tree uh, that would shift you from a, an unacceptable future to the best one? Mm. And then what are those specific things you can do? Maybe switching a process, maybe changing the way that you write a contract, whatever it is, that can radically shift the likelihood of one outcome. Versus another. So this is this is taking that that project manager micro level thinking mm-hmm. and linking it to you know big picture executive thinking. How do you do that effectively? How do you teach your people to do that so that you don't have to do it all yourself? Mm. And then the last piece is about experimentation. So we talked about reality testing, observing systems, generating features, uncoupling threats and opportunities. And the last part of Rogue is experimentation. So so much of the time, what we see when we look at companies, let's take General Motors, mm-hmm. for example. You know, they they have spent a tremendous amount of money in the last hundred years on innovating the combustion engine automobile, right? They invented changing the color of paints. Mm-hmm. Uh, they invented management structures that allow them to have all of these different brands. They've spent lots of money on building better combustion engines, factories, so on and so forth. Then Tesla comes along and says, we're going to build an electric vehicle. And we're going to start building vehicles. Uh, and and, and uh, GM's first electric vehicle does something really interesting. It goes 150,000 miles without a tune-up. Mm. This is a problem because for 100 years, they've been trialing innovations. They've been doing the same thing better and better and better and better and better and better, expecting that the world won't change around them. And now they've got this business model where they sell a car to a dealer. The dealer sells a car every three years to the same customer, and they make their free cash flow by doing maintenance on that car for three years. Well, Mm. if that car doesn't need maintenance and the customer doesn't come back for 12 years (laughs) Mm. for their first tune-up, like... How does that business model exist? How does that operating structure exist? How do those products exist? Mm. So GM has a foundational problem in their business, and we'll see if they overcome it. They, they may, but it's going to be uh, it's going to be heart surgery, right? Mm. <laughs> They're going to have to take out all the organs and put new organs back in to make mm. that company work. And, and it may work, but it's going to be epic because they didn't make small decisions over time that increased both their optionality and their potential. What they did was they optimized for the future they had known. There's a second option here. Mm. And that second option 
is looking at your innovation investments. You know, first of all, looking at how that those decision trees about how you uncouple threats and opportunities, and then looking at your innovation investments and saying, okay, well, what are those high risk, high opportunity innovations? Right? What are those medium risk, medium opportunity inv- innovations? And then what what are those insurance investments that we just need to make? right? To, to have resilience when the world changes. Like what I'm suggesting here is that you look at your innovation portfolio, look like you would any other investment portfolio, right? Like Tesla might or might not be a great investment moving forward. Apple might or might not be a great investment moving forward. Mm. Bitcoin, well, might or might not be a great investment moving forward, mm-hmm. but they have high beta, right? They have the possibility of continuing to grow in some really interesting ways. But you shouldn't put all of your money in those stocks and that one stock and that one equity and that one investment. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is have a barbell strategy, is what they call it an investment, where where you where you manage your risk across those things so that you have countercyclical investments, things that, that do well in bad times. You have uh, investments that are incalculable, but but maybe they'll go they'll go wild. And, and then you have investments that just kind of keep things on the main line, kind of your 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 you know Fortune 500 index fund. You know, and you want to do that with your invest with with your innovation strategy too. Now, this is a bit beyond the scope of the book, but I'd love to engage with you on this for for just a moment. Going back to the General Motors example, you know their their future. Uh, I think they would probably say has not been aided by the fourteen or fifteen states that have said by twenty thirty five we're going to be you know all electric. But I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about the amount of mining necessary to create the batteries alone that go into these electric cars. There seems to be this this mantra by and large that electric cars are good for the environment. But when you consider what goes into making just a single battery for these cars, I'm not so mm-hmm. convinced that's the case. Mm-hmm. Do you have a thought or opinion on that? I think it's a complex question at the larger system, right? Things and you're making exactly my point. When you look at the larger system, when you observe the system mm. uh, and you look at that range of possible scenarios, right? Like you start to see things that are not innately obvious. Uh, mm. I have a lot of concerns about electric vehicles, you mm. know, not just about the cars, you know, may, maybe about the batteries, mm. maybe about geopolitical con- competition in, in Congo, uh, where, where some critical resources for those batteries uh, are primarily mined. And right. it's, it's not a particularly stable uh, government historically. Mm. Um, you know, I have a lot of concerns, you know, here in California, where you know, we have transformers in our in our power grid that are forty years old, seventy years old, some of them, right? And and how do you deal with the 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 the, the way that electricity has to move across that grid uh, and not cause forest fires, especially when yesterday or the day before, you know, the state asked people to not charge their damn cars, <laughs> right? Like like this is going to go bad. On the other hand. If you don't cause the problem, the problem is not going to get solved. So, so it's this mm-hmm. <laughs> it's this two sided question about mm-hmm. you know when you look at that decision tree and where you want your future to go, what are the best branches to snip off? It's it's not always obvious, mm-hmm. you know, unless you unless you look at it from that system's perspective. Mm-hmm. There is a section there where you talk about as a leader. 
uh, being a coach uh, instead of a captain. Yeah, uh, which which caught my attention. What what's the change, uh, Jonathan, in mindset here that, that leaders need to understand? Uh, so to me, I think there are two basic methods of of leadership. Right, there's telling people what to do, and then there's helping people do what they think is necessary. In a world of radical change, you want to figure out how to let your people do as much on their own as possible. Like I said, when the world changes, there's more innovation that has to happen than you have time to command and control, Yeah, right? You're going to sink your own ship if your people don't have that flexibility to take advantage of the system. To be a leader who is able to lead through coaching, right? Some really critical things need to happen on your team. And I think this is the, the key role of managers over the next decade. Uh, one, your people need to understand what's going on in the larger environment. They need to understand the larger ex- uh, objectives of the organization. If you're in a public company, uh, have your people actually read the annual report and the material risks in your annual report? Just section one, right? <laughs> like uh, the the second question. That I would be asking is, you know, what are your goals for the team? People should have a briefing about what's going on in the environment. What are the goals? Second piece, are their incentives aligned with your objectives? If their incentives are unaligned with your objectives, coaching is not going to work, right? <laughs> it never does. Do they understand the risk bands, right? We go and we tell people we want you to innovate. And then it doesn't work. Why? For two reasons. One, we don't tell them how much we will protect them when they, you know, for innovating. And we don't tell them that we will not protect them. We might even fire them if they innovate below a certain threshold. We want a certain failure rate. Otherwise, you are not successful. It's a very counterintuitive thing. Mm. But if you want to lead lions instead of lambs, they need to understand that box. The next thing that that you want to be thinking about is what do you want people to do if things go wrong? Mm. What do you want people to do if things go wrong? Who do they call or what are the next steps? And then the last piece, if you want people to be more innovative on your behalf without telling them what to do, the next thing you need to be thinking about and you need to tell them about is what to do if you don't come back. Right, because so much of the time as leaders, we tell people what to do. We have a half idea, and we we say, "Go to that," and then we disappear or we forget about it for three weeks, and then we come back and we're like, "Why is it not done?" It's because there was a blocker and we didn't come back. So, so how do you deal with that? How do you how do you, how do you close that loop? And as you start to think about these things, right? What 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 is the what's the brief? What is the risk profile that that you're willing to support? And and what do you do when? The world inevitably changes or things inevitably don't work. What are the next steps? You can create that box without ever telling anybody what to do if their incentives are there and you've given them the skills to shape the solution, right? If you mm-hmm. haven't done those things, if you haven't done the B in the book, the behavior mm-hmm. change, it doesn't matter. Like culture change without the skills, it's, it's irrelevant. 
Mm. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, I'd be curious to know, Jonathan, over the course of your career, what have been some of the books that have really uh, impacted you? Maybe they're books that you recommend to other people because of that that impact. A uh, great question. I, I think uh, you know the, the the interesting thing about writing a book is all of a sudden you find out that all of your friends are suddenly book authors, <laughs> and, and you're surrounded by them. Um, so I've probably read more books actually since writing a book than I had like on an annual basis um, mm. before. So so I probably read a hundred books a year now. Mm. Uh, my favorite one that I'm reading right now is called Adaptive Leadership. Uh, I think, uh, Heifert, I think, mm-hmm. uh, but adaptive leadership, really great book on managing politics, managing power. What are some other good ones? Uh, the modern firm by John Roberts. This is an oldie, but goodie. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're interested in organizational architecture and its yeah. relationship to innovation, this is, this is the big kahuna. I rag on Michael Porter. In, in, in the book, but yeah. his books are also brilliant. I think there are three major ways of thinking about innovation. One is kind of structural, the kind of structural industrial competitiveness innovation that he talks about in, in his books. The mm. second is uh, blue ocean strategy, which is, you know, really, um, and it's so Margone and Kim, is that right? They talk about how you do innovation by moving from one environment to another, right? It's it's, mm-hmm. it's easier to compete in a new environment in a new category often than to grow your mature category. Uh, and how do you do that? And then obviously, I think the third an important book is, is Rogue Waves, <laughs> which has a third theory, which is that when the world changes, when the when the ground rules change, when the playing field changes. Mm-hmm. Right, that's your opportunity for growth, and I think that that together they they create a, a really good foundation for thinking about strategy. My business partner Steve Wunker mm-hmm. was one of the initial thinkers around jobs to be done, uh, and really developed that concept when he was in the site and the mm-hmm. processes around it. And I think his book on called conveniently jobs to be done <laughs> is, is one of the best books on product innovation. Mm-hmm. Last question uh, revolves around something that I've been helping people with for about a year now, this idea of personal knowledge management and personal knowledge management systems and Mm. uh, the ways we go about collecting and capturing notes on the content we consume, books and otherwise, organizing those things, um, distilling them down and using them as launching points to our own ideas and unique thoughts. To the, to the point of, of then taking that newly gained knowledge and doing something with it, right? Knowledge is power. No knowledge put into action is power. It's not enough to read a book necessarily. I mean, you can read a book for how it impacts your thinking, but a lot of times you're reading a book uh, with a to-do list at the end. And if you're not doing anything mm-hmm. with that to-do list, then what's the point? And so I'd be curious to know maybe some of your tricks or tips uh, related to those things, personal knowledge management, how you manage that knowledge, uh, your note-taking systems, that sort of thing. Anything there that you're willing to, uh, to share? I guess for me, it's it's unique because I, I write and I speak, you know, for a living. What I'm always trying to do is take what I'm hearing or reading about and compressing it into relevant nuggets, diamonds, mm. right, for the people who I interact with. And so for me, it's it's that constant act of storytelling, right? How do I take this big thing? Uh, you know, my my book is really about you know all of intelligence 
management and, and analysis. You know, how do you create your own CIA mm-hmm. uh, and, and boiling it down to, okay, well, what does that mean if you're an eight person team right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and your job is not to sustain a government, but to, to hit the quarter, <laughs> right? What, what does that mean? So, so that's kind of what I do and, and how I do it. But in terms of my day-to-day process, I'm, I'm a chaos monkey. Like it's got 36 <laughs> different notebooks and 27 hard drives and I'm on 16 different, <laughs> you know, different, di- different Google Docs in any given day. Mm. Well, the book again is called Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. As I said at the top of the show, it's a book I recommend you seek out immediately. Been out for just a little bit over a year and on McGraw-Hill, well worth your time. Jonathan, uh, also well worth our time chatting with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's amazing to be here. I lost count of how many books Jonathan recommended. I think there were about a half a dozen, maybe five uh, great ones to check out. Thank you for that, Jonathan. For that complete list and the other links and resources we talk about, including how to connect with Jonathan online. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 439 for episode 439. There you will also find a link and more information about getting on the notifications list for my next Note Making Mastery Cohort, Note Making Mastery Cohort number three. In fact, again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 439. In the coming weeks, we'll be welcoming my friend Vincent Puglisi, whose new book is called The Wealth of Connection as well as Cynthia Covey Howler and her brand new book, Live Life in Crescendo, written and begun with her late father, Stephen R. Covey. That and more on the way soon, right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that wraps up this episode. I hope to see you for the next one. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.